Ambos is an all-encompassing medical student platform written by doctors that combines a comprehensive library with over 8,000 concise articles with a multiple QBank with over 5,000 multiple choice questions in the form of clinical case scenarios. The entire platform is filled with great learning features that will help to enhance your studies. Ambos comes along with two mobile apps and a great Enki add-on that you can download for free. If you have not used Ambos yet, you can sign up for a free five-day trial on ambos.com to study smarter, not harder. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome back to another episode of the Global Health Chat. I'm, my name's Jess, and I'm here with Erica again, of course. Our, um, we are your podcast producers. And this week, we don't have a guest, but we do have um, a really important and topical issue um, that I think it's very important to raise awareness of as current medical students and future health professionals, especially um, where we need to become more aware of the different uh, cultures and practices of different people, especially in Australia as a very multicultural country. And today that topic is of female genital mutilation. So I think um, female genital mutilation or FGM is something that is not really talked about so much in Australia. Uh, it's probably something that you may have heard of. So Erica, I mean, I thought it would be a really good um, podcast topic to sort of talk about today and delve into a little bit about um, the basics over it. And we've got a lot of this information from the World Health Organization, which we really recommend you also to check up on. And you can read into a lot of the fact sheets that they have there since they're a really good source of information. Um, so just touching a little bit about what it is. So female genital mutilation um, comprises all procedures that involve partial or total removal of the external female genitalia. Um, and it's for non-medical reasons. I think that's probably the big um, factor that needs to be pointed out. And it's typically carried out by traditional circumcisers um, who play central roles in certain communities of various cultural um, regions. And it's really important to recognize that this is internationally recognized as a violation of human rights of girls and women. And it reflects a deep rooted inequality between um, uh, the sexes, female men, uh, males, and it constitutes an extreme form of discrimination against women. Um, so it's, it's, it's just a mere violation of our rights um, and it's something that I think really, you know, we need to shed light on this topic. Um, so I'll hand over to Erica. So Erica, could you tell us a little bit about the different types of female genital mutilation? Yeah, of course. Of course. Thanks, Jess. So there are four main types of female genital mutilation. Um, type one is when there is partial or total removal of the clitoral glands um, and or the clitoral hood over the clitoris. Type two is the partial or total removal of the clitoral glands and the labia minora uh, with or without the removal of the labia majora. And type three is also known as infibulation, which is the narrowing of the vaginal opening through the creation of a covering seal. Uh, which all of these things, as I'm talking to you about, I can imagine as, as women just the thought of this is horrific. And then type four is all other harmful procedures to the female genitalia. So 
it's a bit more of a broad type. So anything like pricking, piercing, incising, scraping, anything like that to that area. So as we can see that these practices are quite horrific. So Jess, would you like to tell us a bit about some of the harmful effects of female genital mutilation? Of course, thanks Erica. Um, so as I pointed out before, female genital mutilation is for non-medical purposes and therefore it really, it has no health benefits at all. And it's purely just harmful for girls and women. Um, as this, as Erica pointed out, the different types, it involves the removal um, of healthy and normal female genital tissue. So it basically just interferes with the natural functioning of girls and women's bodies. Um, yeah, even just saying that, it's truly, it's quite despicable. Um, and there are many, many complications, of course, as you would imagine, um, with a procedure like this that increases um, with increased health risks. So, for example, just some complications, severe pain, um, excessive bleeding, genital tissue swelling, infections, um, with wound healing problems, um, shock, and of course, death. Um, and for those who do survive this um, terrible procedure, there are many long-term complications, of course. So that could be urinary problems, um, vaginal problems with discharge and itching and infections, um, problems with menstruation, um, scar tissue, sexual problems. And I think very importantly, psychological problems. Um, this is associated with depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder, which um, is obviously understandable. And I think um, that's just something that shouldn't be taken lightly. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, definitely important to realize that there are no benefits at all really to this procedure. Um, so Erica, do you mind telling us a little bit about who is the subject of the this practice that we've seen in certain countries? Yeah, of course, Jess. So uh, female genital mutilation, FGM, is mostly carried out on young girls. And at this time period, I guess it's, it's a bit easier to be able to, um, like, convince the young women to have this procedure and also they I believe in many cases they would not be convinced it'd be something that would be like forced upon them uh, and it's on occasionally on adult women it's estimated that more than three million girls have experienced FGM annually which is is such a high number and something that we need to really address and more than 200 million girls and women alive today have had some exposure or has, have experienced this uh, practice. And this is from data from 30 different countries. And the data from the countries has uh, told us that it's mainly concentrated in the Western, Eastern and Northeastern regions of Africa, in some countries in the Middle East and Asia as well and also in other countries where migrants um, from these countries it has also occurred in those countries and and this being um, so widely spread it is definitely a global concern so Jess what are some of the cultural and social factors influencing FGM yeah so there seems to be a variety or a mix of social and cultural factors within families and communities especially in those countries that 
um, you've just mentioned, Erica, that sort of influence why people even perform FGM in the first place. Um, I think some of the most commonly um, cited reasons for this would be um, as a social norm, um, since it's sort of happened for years. So people generally accepted in the community and with a fear of being rejected for the community from the community as well. Um, and they sort of perpetuate the practice. So it becomes this sort of cyclical nature that's hard to stop as many cultural traditions um, are. Um, it's often also considered necessary, a necessary part of raising a girl and to prepare her for womanhood and adulthood and marriage. It's also, um, it's also associated with many cultural ideals about femininity and modesty. So people in these cultural cultures believe that girls need to be clean and beautiful. And in order to do that, you need to remove parts of their body, therefore, cause, uh, thereby, you know, um, it's it's just sort of a way of almost uh, disintegrating females to, you know, their mere body parts. And I think it's, uh, yeah, it's truly, truly shameful. Um, and there's no real religious support, I think, for this practice. This practice doesn't really, it's not embedded in religion, but rather uh, certain cultures. And religious leaders take varying positions with regard to FGM. So some do promote it and some do contribute to its elimination. So we're not saying that, you know, everyone in these particular regions is for FGM. Mm. Um, and yeah, as, as we were saying, it, it's really just considered a cultural tradition. So with many traditions, it's so hard to stop. It's hard to be that person that decides, you know, oh, it's my turn to speak. And I think that um, we need to put an end to this. So I think Eric and I think it's just really important for at least for a bare minimum for us to raise awareness that these do exist in certain societies um, and it's considered tradition. Um, yeah, so Erica, do you mind telling us a little bit about the international response to FGM? Of course. So over the last few decades, um, leading up to 1997, so in the decades leading up to 1997, the WHO issued a joint statement against the practice of FGM with the United Nations Children Fund and the United Nations Population Fund. So they had a very adamant uh, response to this. And since 1997, there have been a lot of efforts to counteract FGM, and that's through community awareness, research, and changes to policy. And some of the things that have happened at an international, national, and subnational levels is that there's wider international involvement to stop FGM. Uh, there's a lot of bodies that try and monitor the practice and condemn it. And there's been some revising of the legal framework to support the ending of FGM. And the prevalence of it has been decreasing uh, in most countries. And there's an increasing number of people who are acting to end its practice. And so there have been like a number of good progressions, but if there's a whole community response, it really reduces the likelihood that individuals will be doing this practice. So that's kind of been the goal of a lot of the international work is 
to promote a culture of it not being okay and then um, the people who do do it won't feel that it's acceptable um, any longer. So I can also yeah just from our perspective um, as medical students it's really useful to know that the WHO has got um, a, a wide-reaching number of different organisations who are also passionate and concerned with this issue. Yeah. So Jess, would you like to talk to us a bit more about the WHO response to this issue? Yeah, of course. So the WHO, as Erica has uh, mentioned, you know, plays a big role in uh, many different global health crises, including um, female genital mutilation. And some of their efforts um, to eliminate female genital mutilation focus on strength, strengthening the health sector response. So by this, we mean developing and implementing guidelines and tools and policies to ensure that healthcare providers can provide medical care and counseling, um, you know, especially the psychological counseling to girls and women living with uh, female genital mutilation. Um, the who um, the who also builds evidence so generates knowledge about the causes and consequences of this practice and tries to provide an information as well as raising awareness about why people carry out this practice and then how to abandon the practice and of course they aim to provide care of course just for those who have experienced FGM and ultimately um, the efforts include increasing advocacy. So um, we've touched on their publications and their advocacy tools um, in order to um, abandon this practice. And um, yeah, they've just continued to, over the last few decades especially, just continue to um, provide support to women at the hands of FGM, as well as um, people like us, people like Erica and I, as well as you listening to the podcast about raising awareness and educating ourselves about this horrific practice um, that still, you know, happens today. Yeah. Okay. And to end our podcast this week. So although these practices are not common in Australia, it's always really important to be aware of them because we live in a very wonderful, beautiful, um, multicultural cultural space and, and country and we are going to be looking after people who may have been the subject of FGM who might still hold beliefs that it is valid and so we really need to know about these things and be able to look after people accordingly and also to uh, acknowledge differences in cultural ways of thinking and always listen to what people have to say but at the end knowing that this is um, a violation of human rights, as Jess said earlier. And yeah, so just some questions that we were thinking about is just like, here, yeah, how do we tackle this as medical students? And I think the, the best way to do that is to really get a really full understanding and, and, you know, not to have it such a taboo topic as well, because I feel that's a big issue in that I remember the first time I heard about it was in medical school and I feel that that's it needs to be talked about more because it's not something that just affects people medically as Jess was saying it affects people psychologically 
um, emotionally, like it's, it's not just a procedure. Uh, so that's really important. Yeah, for sure. So um, we really recommend you go look at the WHSO uh, website. Um, they have extensive resources about FGM that's really easy to read, really accessible for us. Um, so yeah, we really recommend that. And hopefully this provided you with a little bit of insight and a little bit of an overview about FGM, um, as it's certainly something that I'm sure we will uh, come across in the future years. So thanks for listening to this episode and Eric and I will catch you in our next one. Bye. Bye. Our podcast is so excited to be sponsored by OSCEBank. OSCEBank is an amazing resource designed for medical students by Australian doctors. It provides over 180 stations for you to study efficiently for your OSCE preparations. What me and Erica love about OSCEBank is that there's an option to both study solo as well as in an interactive live group. This allows you to study not only in your own time, but also with a group of friends, allowing you to more efficiently prepare for your OSCE exams. Both Eric and I have had um, an amazing time studying with OSCE Bank, and I know personally it's really helped me with my end of year exams. Thanks to OSCE Bank for sponsoring this video.